church? Well, it is lay elder Sunday, but we couldn't convince Julian to lead in worship this morning. Uh, our pastor is on vacation, as David said. I'm Dr. Bob Lutz. My full-time job is I work at a university. I work with college students, but I'm blessed to be here and to open God's word with you today. If you're a, a guest, I know what it's like to visit a church and to get there and not see the pastor. Have no fear. He'll be back next week and start a new series. In the meantime, enjoy the fact that you can understand my accent better than his. <laughs> Let's pray together that God would just be with us as we open God's word together. Dearly Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you're true. I ask that you'd be with us, that you'd prove your faithfulness again, that you would visit with us, lead us, change us. Help me. Allow me to yield to your spirit and make sense of these words that we would be encouraged and changed. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was actually 10 years ago this week that I had one of the most exhilarating experiences of my life. Along with some colleagues from the university I was working at that time, we decided it would be a really good experience to take a small group of student leaders to West Virginia from Ohio on a whitewater rafting trip. And it wasn't just any whitewater rafting trip. This is mid-September in the Upper Gully River. And if you know anything about West Virginia whitewater rafting, this is the pinnacle of it. Uh, they, every, for three weeks in September, the Army Corps of Engineers releases the dam. And it changes what's a pretty good river into an epic river. In fact, let me read the brochure for you just a second, just so you can get a sense of it. The Upper Gully River is the epitome of whitewater excitement. The section of river drops 335 feet in 13 miles, resulting in high volume and technical whitewater from start to finish. Consistently rated one of the top five rivers to raft in the world, it is truly the beast of the east in the United States. This adventure is recommended for experienced rafters who are ready to participate in an intense paddling challenge. This trip runs all five of the big five rapids. So, when you look at this picture, do I look ready? I mean, come on. This, even with spandex or a bodysuit on, this may be one of the coolest pictures I've ever been in. Um, I had a friend see it this summer, and they said I look like Washington crossing the Delaware. I was excited, and I am, look at that, we are conquering the whitewater, we are headed down one of the most fun experiences on water you can have, and I mean, I look, I look like a conquering hero. All right, you can laugh. But it is a good picture of me, and it is a good snapshot, and it, it's, it was, it's, it's a, it's a story. There's a journey here that I want to share with you, and so we'll come back to the story but I want to use this story to actually convey a better story and like a better journey that we see in Psalm 73. So if you still have your, your, your Bible open, uh, let's consider every verse together. We're just going to journey through this um, kind of prayer and uh, story of Asaph. Asaph was actually in uh, David and Solomon's uh, time. He was actually the director of music. He worked closely with David and Solomon, so much so that we've learned from Scripture that David actually wrote psalms with Asaph in mind to lead. 
And we also know that Asaph actually probably wrote about 12 psalms of, him, of his own. And they're beautiful. They're, they're, they're heartfelt and honoring to God, and they're, they're, just, they're rich. Um, in this one, we see, we see a journey. And that's really what, as I entitled the sermon, The Struggle to Delight in God. It's really the journey to delight in God or the struggle to delight in God, and that's what we're going to see. But let's look at verse 1 together. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Well, I told you it's a journey. I told you it's a story, but he doesn't start there, does he? So as he's considering this path, as he's considering this struggle, before he gets to his experience, he knows he needs to start with a true statement. And, and it, it isn't just a true statement. It's both historical and theological about God. He starts by framing, and he doesn't do it with sarcasm. This isn't perfunctory. This isn't, yeah, so-and-so a saying. This is him starting with something he wants to hold up. And so why does he begin this way? Well, we'll kind of see later on in this passage. He actually talks about it kind of being his foundation, where he's standing, I've been thinking about it this week as this is probably one of my favorite psalms. I, th I think of it a little bit like a GPS. Like this is, this is what I need to hold up so I know where I'm going. This is where I, this is my map. Uh, my, my friend and brother Bruce, uh, he flies jet airplanes and he has this huge panel of instruments in front of him, right? And these instruments tell him everything about the plane, but they also tell him what he needs to do with the plane. And, and that's really what we have is kind of an instrumentation, a guide, a truth, a bearing point. And so he starts there, and I've, I find that encouraging because it's easy to want to jump into my story, right? Like I did it even in my sermon. We prayed. We took, I, you open your eyes, and here I am talking about going, you have to look at me in a wetsuit. I'm sorry. Um, but... He doesn't start that way. So I just didn't ask you this question this morning. What about God are you holding up as an instrument? What truths about God are you clinging to as kind of a directional device in your life or the means by which you then calibrate your own experiences? We, we had the opportunity to sing some amazing things this morning. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ His Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the God, the three in one. That's a truth about God. And it's something that we need to remind ourselves of, right? It's something that we need to hold up. It's something we can forget. I just ask you, what are those things as you head into your week this week? What are the things before you start your, your work, your school, job search? You need to say, I need to hold this up before I start my experience. Well, I love also that Asaph doesn't, doesn't just go there. He, he quickly also is honest. So as we read in verse 2 and 3, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In essence, he's saying, this is true. I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it right now. I don't have it. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes Asaph with, with a unique word, which I kind of like. He, he uses the term perplexed. It's a little bit confused. It's a little bit unsure. It's a little bit lost sight. Um, he, he's saying, you know, this is true, God, but I'm honestly struggling to believe it this morning. Believe in the Trinity. I don't see it. And honestly, it's tempting me. I'm actually feeling trial. This is good. This truth of God is good. But what I'm in right now is really capturing my eyes away from that. And and what is that? Why is he tempted? Well, it says he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Wicked is such a great biblical term. We probably don't call people wicked very often now, do we? Except for maybe witches and stories about munchkins. Um, But I do want you to listen to this description because I do think it will hit closer to home and maybe as we walk through our week what we see and what we struggle with. So let's read how Asaph describes the wicked. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. They have no worries until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Interesting term. Basically means they have whatever they want. They're not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. So because they've got it easy, they're walking with pride. It says, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with folly. So they've got it easy, and then they get to do whatever they want. So much so that as as they do it, in verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They take advantage of others. They make themselves look good. They've got it great. They go even further. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven. So it's not even just that they're kind of lording over other people or they're they're better than other people. They're actually, they're questioning the very God. And their tongues strut about the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and they find no fault in him. They are doing so well. They are so attractive. They are so successful that the people, that actually the people of Israel are saying, I know, I want to be like that. I want that. I'm gonna, I want to follow after them. Even though they're actually questioning the very God of Israel. There's something in them. They've got an experience. They've got it going. It's like, I want that. And then they go to the, even the original sin. They say, how can God know? In verse 11, is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increasing in riches. In other words, these people have what they want. They have it easy. All the while, they're proud and violent. They don't care about true justice. They scoff at God, and they lead others astray. Maybe not and even just in their negativity, but because we just view them as so successful. We view them as having what we want. Well, what effect did seeing the wicked, seeing these successful people, seeing these people that have it at ease, what that effect have on Asaph? Look right here. It says, now he went from holding up a truth of God to 
just saying, I'm not seeing it because I'm looking out and I'm seeing others and I want what they have and it just doesn't seem fair and now I'm looking at myself. So I went from looking at God to looking at others to now saying, what do I have? And he, he says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken. I've been rebuked every morning. And he says something interesting. He says, if I have said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. So his foot had almost slipped, right? So this foundation he had, this GPS, this instrumentation. He, he's flying, but he's really tempted to look out the window, and he's flying through the clouds, and he's like, this doesn't seem right. Let me adjust a little bit. This doesn't seem right. Let me adjust a little bit. And you've heard those stories where pilots come out upside down, He's really tempted to do that because that looks really good and this looks really empty. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. It's easy. Maybe you've been coming to church for years faithfully. You've been obedient. You've, you've not done the things you're not supposed to. You've done the things you're supposed to. You, but you're watching other people at work get promoted. You see classmates at school Maybe get the lead in the play, get the starting position. They have all the friends. They've got the right clothes, and they're doing great. Maybe, whether you're young or old, you see friends of yours from the past on social media, which we could preach a whole sermon on social media, that they're taking pictures of their houses, their vacation spots, their boats, and they look good in pictures. It's easy to look good in a picture. All the while, you're struggling with health. Maybe you're in and out of the hospital. Maybe you're taking care of parents who are dying. Maybe you're financially supporting people, and you're struggling to make ends meet. Maybe you lost your job during a pandemic. And all the while, you're seeing people that are that are not honoring God, that do not care about God, and they've got it great. It's easy to move from here to here to what's God done for me, right? I think of my mother-in-law this morning. My mother-in-law and my father-in-law, medical missionaries, spent the years on the field. On the field, she contracts a very, very, very deadly virus in her lungs, and it starts to eat away. Well, she was healed miraculously, but they go in to, to fix that this year. And it actually reintroduced the virus in her system. So she's, she's fighting in a hospital right now in downtown Philadelphia against a very deadly, very deadly bacteria. And they've had to remove part of her rib. They've had to remove part of her side. She's sitting in an ICU. And from her ICU room, she can see downtown Philadelphia. Skyrise apartments. Penthouses. And does that seem fair? It's easy to not see the fair in this world. It's easy and it's true to not see justice in this world. And we can move from the truth of God to quickly moving out. Well, is there advice for us in what Asaph's saying about that? Just some quick advice as we move through this journey. Are there some things we could grab that would help us? I think there are. I think there's four quick things. Number one, keep truth in front of you. 
you came in this morning and you're not feeling it and you're struggling with God's faithfulness and you're struggling with your experience, it is still a really good thing to sing about the Trinity. It is still a really good thing to start your week with truth as a way to calibrate what your experiences are. Like, please don't stop. Start here. It's called, it's called a foundation. It's a GPS. It's an instrument. It guides you to where you need to go. Number two, I love this. I think it's easy to want to start with truth, like truth, I need truth, I need truth, but not be honest about where I am. To not be honest about, like, God cares about my emotions, as John Piper says. And to be honest about your emotion, to be honest about your experience, to be honest about... God, I'm not seeing it. I don't see justice. I don't see right. I don't see how this is worth it. And to, to take that to God. To take it to God. He's, he's crying out to God here. But what's he not doing? Look in verse 15 again. What does he not do? He doesn't speak. Because he knows he's a leader in Israel. He knows he has influence over God's people. And he knows that he can lead others astray like the wicked with his words. He watches what he says. Well, please, I just encourage you, start with truth. Be honest with God. Watch what you say. And keep practicing that as you take it to God. But the last thing, the most important thing, the most encouraging thing, don't stay there. Do not stay there. We get to see a transformation of Asaph, starting with truth, but struggling with what he's seen. And he is transformed to what we read through Matt, right? That's encouraging stuff. That was uplifting stuff. That was what we know to be true about God. Well, he was transformed. And let's read how he got there. Let's move to verse 16. What changed? But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. There he is. He's perplexed again. I don't, I don't got it. I don't got it. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. So what did change? He entered the sanctuary of God. That's an interesting word, isn't it? I, I was wrong. In the 9 a.m. service, I, I, I thought for sure there's a sign above the door that says sanctuary. We call it the sanctuary, don't we? It actually says worship center, in case you need to go look. But sanctuary is a term that we often call this room in a church, right? And we don't call it a theater. We don't call it an auditorium. We don't, some of us we could call it a meeting room. But we call it a sanctuary. It's kind of optimistic, isn't it? It's not just a room. It's what we want to do when we're in the room. And I, I love that thought because the sanctuary of God as described in the Old Testament, as described in Psalms, is actually, it really has a description wrapped up in our understanding of the temple. Remember, the temple was built during the time of David and in Solomon, and an actual, it's moving into those holy rooms all the way to a, a sense of being near the holy of holies. And it's entering that place of awe. 
Calvin describes it as the revelation of God's word in your heart. That this truth becomes real in the person of standing before God. It's him within his word. You see God for who he really is. You get a glimpse. Lloyd-Jones calls it, you stand in his presence. There's a sense of awe, isn't it? You get to see that God is who he says he is. He's holy. He is just. He is eternal. He's good. And he's sitting on his throne. And you're standing in some sense in front of that. And it changes everything. And I want, I want to, just as we walk through this journey, as we get towards the end, I want us to talk about what entering this sanctuary does to change Asaph and what I hope it can do to change us. Well, I want to get back to the story. So let me tell you a little bit more about the picture you saw. That is actually a view from the mountaintop, or actually it's probably a view of the aerial, but there's a mountain that you can see this from. And you can see the whole rapid that I'm about to enter into. And that rapid is called Pillow Rock Rapid. Because that large rock there on the left side of the really, like where the toilet bowl is, it's actually called the toilet bowl, is called Pillow Rock. It looks like a giant, it's a three-story building size pillow. And it's, it's also called pillow because you're supposed to technically come into that rapid and you're supposed to hit it at the right speed, at the right angle, that you actually go all the way up. You hit this big rock, you reach out and touch it, and it spins you around 180, and then you go back down the rapid and you have to avoid that other big rock on the right that's called Volkswagen Rock because it looks like a Volkswagen van. And it is a very technical and what I came to find out, a very deadly rapid during dam release season. So much so that I found out on the ride home <laughs> that a young lady had died under that very rock a day before I was in it. So much so that three people died that very month in that very rapid. And here I am. So now what do you see? I am churning, I am moving, I am excited, I am conquering this rapid, right? That's what we thought. I look cool. Let me tell you what's actually happening. What's actually happening is I am so excited and jazzed and so confident in myself that I cannot hear my guide. Now, let me tell you one more thing my guide told me before we got in the rapid. We're actually in the smooth water before the first, we got through the first couple rapids. We dominated. It was great. And then he stops the boat. And we're all just floating along. And he says, I want to tell you something. We're about to go into Pillow Rock Rapid. And I've been looking forward to Pillow Rock Rapid because my boss had told me how great it was. And he's like, you touch on it and hit the rock. Okay. So he stops us and he says, if you fall out in this rapid, I just want to tell you one thing. Swim as hard as you possibly can, like your life depends on it. And number two, I need you to count slowly to 12. Everybody do that now. One, two, three. Because if you fall out, the 
the force of that water is going to hold you under at least 12 to 15 seconds. And you, even with a life vest on, you will not surface. And you need to swim because you can get caught in the rapid. And so now I'm tackling it, and you see not someone conquering. You see a fool. Because I am so excited that I cannot listen to my God so much so that because of the roar of the rapid coming before me and the desire to touch pillar rock, I don't hear him. He's telling me, stop, you're coming in too fast. And we do, we come in, we come towards pillar rock, I reach out, I touch pillar rock. At that point, I realize I'm going to touch pillow rock with my entire body. <laughs> And the person behind me touches pillar rock, and the person behind them touches pillar rock, and our boat, as you can see, now gets pushed up and pushed over. And everything that guide told me was true. I swam as hard as I possibly could, like my life depended on it, and I was underwater in the most churning, violent white water that you could ever experience for 15 seconds. And when I came up, <sighs> gasp for air. Another boat picks you up, they grab you, and they throw you in the bottom of this boat, and you're just sitting there, wet, cold, demoralized, ruined. So now, that gives you a much better picture of what you see. It may have looked awesome. It was ruined. And, I, and it, <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was one of the best memories of my professional experience with college students and one of the worst. A few of them still have never spoken to me after that day. But it's a silly story that gives you an understanding of a greater truth, isn't it? What we see isn't always what's true, especially in light of who God is. So when we enter the sanctuary of God and we actually see him for who he is, it changes our view of the world around us. It changes our view of others. Let's read how Verse 18 to 22. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them like phantoms. I do not see vengeance in Asaph's words here. I see sobering, sobering words standing before absolute justice and absolute power. Which brings me to my second point that I think entering the sanctuary of God does. It changed Asaph's view of what he sees in others. This arrogant ease that in reality is scoffing at a just, holy, magnificent God who will judge them. And this vapor of their life will be swept away into destruction damnation. But it changes Asaph's view of himself, right? Entering the sanctuary of God changes Asaph's view of who he is before God. Read in verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, which we saw earlier in this passage, when I was pricked in my heart, basically when I got this prick that said, this doesn't seem fair, not seeing it. In actuality, God, I was brutish and ignorant. I was a fool. He goes to say, he says, I was like a beast toward you. The actual translation here, the 
best translation that I could sort through, he's actually calling himself a, a disfigured monster. He's blessed to still stand on this rock, but he's not accurately reflecting who he is because he's looking at others and looking at himself, and he's moved from the truth of God to saying, what's God done for me? What do I have from God? But, but, the next word in this passage may be one of the most encouraging you can find. And I just want to encourage you with this. That, that Asaph has changed his view himself. Right now he's humbled. He realizes he's ugly. And he's standing before beauty. He's standing before majesty. And he's undone. And he's in need. And in this same just God that could destroy the wicked, could destroy him, probably has right to he finds, nevertheless. Nevertheless, in verse 23, despite all that, despite how ugly I am, you are continually with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I don't desire anything else. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and the heart of my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Notice a couple things that we've seen change in this passage. Notice that he starts with the truth, but then he's into his struggle. He starts with the truth, but he's in temptation and trial. And in the temptation and trial, the words he uses are they, 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 which changes his heart to view God transactionally, and he begins to say, I, 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 what do I have? Until, by God's faithfulness, he is brought before the very presence of God, and his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness. And he's changed. He's transformed. And now what are the words he's using? What is directing him? Every one of those pronouns has moved to you. It's everything God is doing or has done. Instead of the I and the they, they're gone and Asaph sees. God's activity is actually his salvation keeping him. It's his sanctification. He's being guided like a father guides a like I, I would guide my daughter across the playground. I'm way more powerful than she is. But to reach down and to lovingly just walk her over the swing set. He's guiding us. He's sanctifying us. And he, there's hope here. He'll receive me to glory. I'll get to actually see all of it every bit of who God is and it's all because of you 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 Asaph gets God he doesn't just get a truth about God he doesn't get the good things 
doesn't get no pain. He actually gets God. He gets his presence. He gets his hand. He gets his leading, his faithfulness. He gets him, and it's good. It's so good he doesn't want anything else. I love verse 28. It's one of my favorites. It says, for the nearness of God is my gate. You see, he's still standing on this rock, but he's slipping. He's falling. He's looking down. He's, he's more interested in there, and yet God has still been near to him. And until he turns and he sees and he stands in the presence of God, he doesn't realize that God had been near to him the whole time. Because God's faithful. He's unchanging. And it's amazing to me because one of the translations of this just doesn't say, for it is good for me to be near. It actually says, for God's nearness to me is my good. That the very God who stands on his throne would, would be near <laughs> to me, who's a monster and ugly and, per, and, and wants things I shouldn't want and things I want. Well, I love this passage. And I have to reread it from time to time because I struggle still. And I'm curious where you are this morning. What do you identify with this in this passage? Maybe, maybe you're there. Maybe you're experiencing the presence of God this morning. Praise God. Enjoy that presence. Let that continue to inform you. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know that you know God. And, and when you see this idea of standing in the presence of God, you see the verses more that he will judge the wicked. That he stands completely in control of this world. And that may scare you. As you read in verse 27, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Is that true? It is absolutely true. But there is encouragement this morning, not in what you've done, not in what you've had, not in just the truths that you put out in front of you, but there's, there is encouragement this morning that God's near, so much so that he's, we have the whole word of God in front of us this morning. And we have the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That, as Asaph says, his heart and his flesh may fail, but God sent his son, whose heart and his flesh did not fail, but was righteous and perfect and obedient. Even in this temptation to want these things, he did not slip, he did not move. He held in his desire the presence of God, and then he bore on the cross what we deserved which is our sin, our shame, which was our ugliness and our desire to be wicked. And he did that, and it's completed, and it's real, and God is still near. And if you believe and you seek Christ, you can experience the presence of God this morning, and you can have the hope of experiencing all of it in heaven. Well, maybe you're here and you do know Christ, but you've walked through these doors and you've sung about the Trinity and you've sung amazing things about God, but you're struggling. It's just difficult. And you're wanting to hold truth up, but you're like, I, I, I'm not going to make it this whole week. I, I'm, I'm struggling to make ends meet, and all I see is difficult things happening. Well, I just, I want to encourage you just this morning, like, think, look at Asaph. Like, it's, it's 
good to still hold up truth, but it's good to be honest. It's good to be honest about these things. Be honest with God. Take these things to God and follow the path that Asaph followed, this struggle, this journey. Follow it, not just through the first two. Like, don't stop. If you're struggling this morning to see it, don't stop and give up. Don't, don't go to what, um, in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes as doubting castle. That they were struggling and fell asleep because they, they weren't sure which way to go. They went the wrong way, took bad advice. And they fell asleep on the roadside, but they were actually asleep on the roadside in this kingdom of, of, a, of a, a king called Giant Despair in his castle and his wife diffident and Giant Despair grabs them and he throws them in this dungeon and they sit there in their doubt and that may be you this morning but I love that story because they're sitting in a dungeon and it is when Christian realizes and his companion that they actually have the key to the door it's the key of promise and they walk out. And giant despair has no hold on them. Follow that same path this morning. Try desperately to be honest with God and seek his sanctuary, seek his presence. That way you'll reach to, to what is the end, right? Like This is a process that, that Jerry Bridges calls preaching the gospel to yourself every day. I know this is true about God. But I know who I am, and I know my struggle, and I know what I want, and I know what I want isn't real, and it isn't good, and I'm in need, because when I stand before the actual presence of God, when I stand in the sanctuary of God, I know that I'm, I'm undone. I have no right to stand here. But I stand here with confidence on firm foundation because of what Christ did for me. And I get to enjoy everything he describes here in verse 23 to 28. I get every presence. I get, I get his right hand. I get his goodness. I get his faithfulness. I don't have to worry about anything in heaven or anything on earth because I have the God who made it and will judge all of it and rule it for eternity. And he's standing with me. He stood where I couldn't stand and took the penalty on the cross. Please don't give up. Continue on this journey. Continue to seek God, not for something about God, not for what he can do for you, but the, his presence. If you're a member of First Point this morning, I want to encourage you for being here and just encourage you. Isn't, isn't this struggle what we do every Sunday? Isn't it why we come together in this room that we, uh, I guess, call a worship center? But also call a sanctuary like we come into this room and we hold up truths about God and we need them every week and then we sit and we hear God's word faithfully preached by David or other or Jose or how Keith leads us and and we sit in these chairs and we compare truth to what I'm feeling to what I'm seeing to what I I'm walking through, and we wrestle with that, and that wrestling's good. That wrestling's needed. This isn't just a social club at all. It's so much more. And we actually want to come into the presence of a holy God 
because we need his presence because it transforms us, it changes us, and then gives us the trust we need to walk out of these doors and to be faithful and walk with him while he guides us, and then to be giving testimony. I mean, look at how he finishes this. He says in verse 28 again, he says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, my hiding place, where I go, that I may tell of all your works, that I may tell of what you've done for my heart, of what you've done for my life, the hope I have in heaven. That's why we meet. That's why it's so special. That's why it isn't just the meeting. It's also us sharing our lives together. It's us talking about, in honesty, who God is and in our experiences with God and sometimes how that's not aligned and then the desire that we would then encourage each other to accurately see God and then that we would live it so that we would go from actually just walking in the delight of God to discipling others in Christ and then declaring to those who don't know him the truths about him this journey is good this journey is what we need because this journey ends in us being with God. I want to leave our time together by looking at one of my favorite hymns because I think it, it talks through this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself that we see in Asaph's psalm and what we do with doubt and what we do with unbelief and fear. It's, it's called Not What My Hands Have Done and it's a hymn by Horatius Bonar and the first few uh, verses he sings about not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul not what my flesh has borne can give me peace with God but you oh Christ what you've done has, has met that and he goes on to actually then give praise to Christ for what he's done and he says in verse 4 he says here he says I bless the Christ of God I rest my journey ends at love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. And just listen to this. This is what stuck out to me all week. His cross dispels each doubt. And then the Horatius Bonar says, he's actively doing this. I bury in his empty tomb. I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear each lingering shade of blue. And then he ends with praise. He says, I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lived. That's our hope this morning. We can experience the presence of God and it is good and it is better than anything we see or think is real. Let's journey together with each other to hold up that truth but to seek his presence. Pray with me now. Dearly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that we can know it. Thank you more importantly because of Christ and what he's done that we can actually know you. And that we have the hope to know you fully in heaven and to be with Christ because of him dying. It's done, it's completed, it's real. May we trust it. We've never trusted it before. May we kneel before you in your holiness and ask forgiveness, not in ourselves, but in what Christ has done. 
if we have, God, may we, may we come back to that gospel every day. May we hold that truth up in front of us in our lives this week. That we would enjoy you, we would delight in you, and that we would be with you. In Christ's name, amen.